Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. While you're doing that, I want you to consider a question. Have you ever been hypocritical? One Sunday morning, a couple years ago, I was sitting in the service with my family when it came time to take the Sunday offering, and so I had a, I had a check in my pocket. I took it out and I handed it to my oldest son because I thought this would be good for him to put in the plate just to teach him how we give. So I handed it to him and instead of putting the offering plate, he opens it up, takes a piece of gum out, sticks it in the check, folds it, folds it in half and puts it in his pocket. (laughs) I remember just looking at him thinking like, what are you doing? And he looks at me like, what? He thought I was handing him something to throw his gum away in. I was handing him a check to go in the offering, and so I'm sitting there and I'm just getting more and more annoyed because now I've got to void this check, now I've got to write a new check next week, I've got to remember to do that, and and all of it, as this is all happening, here's the worst part, I was about to get up and preach on anger, and I'm just sitting in my seat getting angry at my oldest son. You know, hypocrites come in all shapes and sizes, but the worst type of hypocrites are the loud and preachy ones. Like someone who'd get angry with their child and then preach about the evils of anger. Have you ever been a preachy hypocrite? Have you ever scolded people for the very same mistakes that you make? Like there's no honor in being a silent hypocrite, but there's greater harm when your hypocrisy is loud and forceful. Well, Jesus' most famous sermon, I know you've been studying it this summer, is called the Sermon on the Mount, and it covers chapters 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 5, Jesus shows how obedience to him begins in the heart, and it flows out of love for him, and it flows out of love for others. And then starting in chapter 6, Jesus focuses on hypocrisy. He reveals how easy it is for us to do religious activities like fasting and praying and giving with wrong motives. And he primarily focuses on how we try to be outwardly pious in order to impress other people with our spirituality. Now, he returns to this same subject of hypocrisy here at the beginning of chapter 7. Hypocrisy left unchecked always turns into arrogant judgment. We're not only pretend to be something or not, but we'll condemn others in the process. And the point of Jesus' instruction here in these first six verses is simple. He's saying, be merciful, not judgmental. This passage divides easily into two parts. In the first part, Jesus condemns hypocritical judgment. Jesus condemns hypocritical judgment. Look at it, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, this may be the most misunderstood misinterpreted and misapplied verse in the entire Bible. Anytime a person makes a judgment that people don't like, then this is the verse that is wielded. If, no one, if someone knows nothing about the Bible, they somehow still know this verse. But is Jesus really making a blanket injunction against all forms of judgment? Because if so, he contradicts himself just five verses later when he tells us to avoid giving valuable truth to those who are dogs and pigs. 
And then he contradicts himself again in verses 15 and 16 when he tells us to beware of false prophets and how to judge a false prophet by looking at their fruit. So Jesus is clearly not telling us to avoid judging at all times and at all costs. Because Jesus says more about judging than verse 1. And what he says clarifies his command. Jesus condemns a certain type of judging. Judging that is hypocritical. Judging that is arrogant. You see, we all judge. It's impossible not to judge. Not only is it impossible, it's foolish. So my sons have been studying World War II. They've read about Hitler. Should they make a judgment about him? Like that's the one guy we're allowed to judge, right? Hitler. What about the rape of Nan King? Can I tell them that it was wrong for 200,000 Chinese people to be raped and murdered? Let's make it more personal. Let's say I stole your car. You know it, and I know it, but since you're not allowed to judge, you can't say anything to me about it. So after the service, I come up to you and I say, hey, can I borrow the keys to your other car? Well, do you let me borrow them? Why not? Are you judging me? Yes, you are, and you should. Jesus is not making this like blanket statement against all forms of judgment. Because in another passage, in John 7, 24, Jesus commands us to judge. He says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right motives. That word judge is an imperative or a command. Jesus is commanding us to judge. The Apostle Paul goes a step further. He says judgment can actually be a sign of spiritual maturity. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, he says, the spiritual person judges all things. So to understand exactly what kind of judging Jesus condemns, we've got to get a better grasp on how the hypocrites functioned. So we find three realities about hypocrites and how they view others. First, hypocrites have no interest in mercy. They have no interest in mercy. Look at verse 2. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Like, we love to pronounce judgment. How many times have I wished I were a police officer when a car goes flying by me? Listen, it's not because of justice. It's because I want to give them a ticket. I want to pronounce judgment on them. How dare they go flying by me? How about the person who put tire tracks in my front lawn? I want them arrested. What about the person a couple years ago who used my credit card number to order $400 online from H&M? I don't even know what that store is. I've not been a death penalty advocate, but when that happened, I was seriously considering it. Like, my thirst for justice isn't confined to those who commit crimes. It extends to salesmen and referees and coworkers and family members. Anyone who has crossed me, anyone who's disagreed with me, mercy is not my native tongue. Justice is. But my thirst for judgment, it reveals something about how I see myself. I see myself as someone who doesn't need mercy. Because if I saw myself as needing mercy, I would be far more likely to extend it to others. Hypocrites have no interest in showing people mercy because they don't recognize their own need for mercy. Do you see this? If you don't show mercy to other people, 
but instead your life is characterized by judgment. You'll be judged by God. Now, don't misunderstand this. We don't earn mercy by showing mercy. Our mercy reveals that we have received mercy. So if you're critical all the time from this passage, I wonder if you're a Christian. Those who've experienced God's mercy will show mercy to others. Unless you perfectly obey God's law, you need mercy. And the law of God can be summarized in two commands, right? Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you perfectly obey those commands? Now, if you're not sure, then after the service, I'd like you to give me all of your stuff. Like all of it. And if you say, well, no way, I'm not doing that, then do you really love your neighbor as yourself? See, God has two laws, and we break them constantly. We are lawbreakers, and so our only hope is mercy. James 2.13 tells us, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So how does mercy triumph over judgment? Well, through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the fulcrum which tips the scales from justice to mercy. The cross is the bridge which spans the chasm of judgment and allows us to walk safely across. And that's why a sure sign of genuine Christianity is a merciful disposition to others. See, unlike the hypocrites, We should see ourselves as fully deserving the judgment of God and apart from the triumph of mercy, we are completely helpless. If we saw ourselves as we should, as those who desperately need mercy, then we would show mercy to others. See, the further we get from the cross, the easier it is to be judgmental. That's why we need to gather each week with Christians, right? Gather and rehearse the gospel. Every week we need this reminder that mercy triumphs over judgment through the cross of Jesus. The cross is what kills our pride and arrogance. It tells us we deserve judgment. But the mercy of Jesus intervened. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Have you experienced God's mercy in your own life? See, hypocrites, they have no interest in mercy. The second thing about hypocrites is hypocrites are blinded by pride. They're blinded by pride. So in verses three and four, Jesus gives this laugh out loud description of a man who's trying to perform very delicate eye surgery. And the only problem is that the surgeon has a two by four sticking out of his own eye. Look at verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You see, what really blinds the hypocrite is not his own sin as much as it is his own pride. He cannot or he will not see his own condition. Most of our problems can be traced back to pride. Most of our sin can be traced back to a wrong estimate of our own goodness. The word hypocrite refers to an actor on stage. It described a person who appeared as one thing when they were really something else. A hypocrite is a liar, a deceiver. Often they've lied and deceived themselves. 
So imagine the depth of self-deception necessary to not notice a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. Like, how could someone be that blind? Like, surely someone would have said something to them at some point. But due to our pride, we often refuse to listen. Like, God speaks to us through his word. He gives us other Christians who speak into our lives to keep us from being blinded to our own sin. But pride is like wax in our ears. It hardens and hardens until we can no longer hear. Who are you listening to? Who is it who speaks into your life? I mean, who have you given a blank check to that they can write anything on that check? They can give it to you and no matter what they say, you'll listen. How would you even know if you have a two-by-four sticking out of your eye? You know, we often hear a question like that and we think, well, listen, I would know. I would know. I mean, if I had a two-by-four sticking out of my eye, I would know. And I would say, really? Because King David was called a man after God's own heart. He commits adultery, then to cover it up, he commits murder. And then for a full year, for a full year, due to his pride, he refuses to acknowledge it and repent. Never underestimate the insidious nature of pride. Pride so blinds us that we will preach against things others are doing when we're doing something far worse. And I've seen this firsthand in churches. The people who complain about what is or what is not happening in the children's ministry, they're the ones who never volunteer to serve in the children's ministry. The people who complain about the budget, don't give. The people who complain about the music, they stand there and they refuse to sing. Our pride so clouds our vision that we criticize others for the speck in their eye when we've got a piece of lumber where our eyeball should be. Here's a question I've found helpful to expose pride in my own heart. Do I accuse in others what I excuse in myself? Do I accuse in others what I excuse in myself? I'm a master at doing that. Here's all the reasons why it's okay for me to do it, but how dare they do it? See, that's hypocrisy that's fueled by pride. Third thing about hypocrites, hypocrites harm instead of help. Hypocrites harm instead of help. How can you help someone when you've got a beam sticking out of your eye? You'll either smack them in the face or you're going to poke their eye out. See, judgmentalism, this type of hypocritical, arrogant judgmentalism is such a significant problem because there are always victims Judging others with an attitude of arrogance hurts people. It injures them. And it obscures the gospel. The reputation of Jesus is damaged by hypocritical Christians just as badly as that person's eye is damaged. Now, did you notice that Jesus gives no specific examples in this passage? And Jesus doesn't say, now here, here are the specific areas where you judge people. And the reason he doesn't give examples is because we would have this tendency to limit this instruction to his examples. But I think the lack of examples shows us something. It shows us that every area of our lives is prone to hypocrisy. Every area of our lives is prone to this type of judgment. There is no safe zone. We have this amazing ability to turn anything into a reason to criticize others. 
So we criticize and judge people for how they parent. We're especially prone to do this before we have kids. Because once we have kids, we realize we don't have any idea what we're doing. Like, why would we criticize someone? Because I realize now I have no clue what I'm doing. We criticize where people send their kids to school, even though we've all seen good and bad examples of every form of school. We judge people for their political positions. I once had an older Christian man sit in my office and said, I don't know how a person could be a Christian and vote. And then literally he took half of the American people and said there's no way they could be a Christian. We judge people for how they spend or how they save, usually depending upon whether we're a spender or a saver. We'll even criticize people for doing opposite things. So we judge one person, he's too busy, well, he's lazy. You know, maybe the worst type of criticism takes the form of gossip, and this is where we criticize people behind their back, but in front of other people. So chapter 7 begins with Jesus condemning this type of hypocrisy that causes us to judge other people. But then it continues in the second half by Jesus commanding humble mercy. He commands humble mercy. So there are two commands in this passage. So the first was in verse 1, judge not. But the second is in verse 5, take the log out. So he commands us not only to stop the hypocritical judgment, but also commands us to show mercy. How do we do this? How do we show humble mercy? Well, mercy begins with repentance. Mercy begins with repentance. In verse 5, Jesus says, first. The very first thing you must do is recognize your own sin. Recognize your pride, your arrogance, your hypocrisy, and deal with it. Mercy comes to the person who is broken over their sin. You will not show mercy until you have received mercy, and you won't receive mercy until you see your desperate need for mercy. So the first thing, the primary thing, is to address your own sin. Have you ever done this? Because you cannot be a Christian unless you've repented of your sin and received the mercy of Jesus. So let me invite you on behalf of Jesus to come today and receive the mercy he extends. If you acknowledge your sin, if you turn from your sin, you will receive mercy no matter how big your sin is, whether it's a two by four or a fence post or a steel beam. The mercy of Jesus is big enough to cover it I love what Richard Sibbs wrote centuries ago. He said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. The mercy of Jesus is always bigger than your sin. I think one of the sweetest verses in the Bible is Micah 7 verse 9 that says, when we repent, when we turn from our sin and confess it, it will be buried in the very deepest part of the sea. The deepest part part of the sea. The deepest part of the sea is called the Mariana Trench. Do you realize it's so deep that you could take Mount Everest and you could submerge it in the Mariana Trench and it would be still, the top of Mount Everest would be so far below the water that ships would still pass easily over it. So it's as if God is saying to you this, you see that mountain? If that mountain is your sin, I can still bury it in the sea. So the way we grow in mercy is to think often and deeply about the mercy that we have received in Christ. One of my heroes is John Newton. John Newton was a pastor in England a few hundred years ago. If you read his letters and the songs he wrote, they just drip with mercy and grace. 
you're probably familiar with at least his most famous song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So John Newton's story was that he was, I mean, he was a reprobate. He was involved in the slave trade. He actually became a slave ship captain, going into Africa, stealing people from their homes, bringing them over the seas, many of them dying on the way over and then selling them as property. This is, this is who he was, and he embraced it fully in all of its wickedness. So how does John Newton end up becoming a guy who writes songs about the mercy and grace of Jesus? It was the mercy of Jesus which led him to repentance. He said this at the end of his life, I know two things. I'm a great sinner, and he's a great savior. Like That's it. It's the mercy of our great savior which leads to repentance, and from this repentance, it produces mercy to others. Second thing about mercy, not only does it begin with repentance, it helps those in need. It helps those in need. Look at verse five. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, so there's our repentance, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. I don't know if you've ever had a problem with your eye. Maybe you got something stuck in it. Maybe you got poked. No matter what happens, eye problems are obvious, right? You can't hide them, right? When something's wrong with your eye, it turns red. It's puffy. It's bloodshot. And so he says here, when you see an obvious problem, when you see a brother or sister in distress, help them. So Jesus is not telling us to function here as self-appointed Gestapo. We're always on the lookout for other people's sin. We don't walk around with with a microscope trying to examine people's eyes to see if there's a speck of dust in them. We don't develop a network of informants to keep us aware of others' shortcomings. We just spend time with our brothers and sisters. And when we do, sometimes we're going to notice, wait, there's some redness. Oh, there's some puffiness in her eye. She, She seems to be squinting. He seems to be blinking a lot. And when we see that, because we love them, we'll ask them, can I help you with that problem? You see, it's not loving to see your brother or sister with an eye problem and refuse to help. Jesus tells us to be merciful, to act in love. Ignoring a brother or sister in distress is not an act of love, but an act of selfishness. Now imagine someone in here might be thinking, Josh, I can't help someone else because I struggle so much myself. If that's your attitude, let me say this to you. You are exactly the person to help. Exactly the person to help. Who better to help than someone acquainted with the struggle? Who better to show mercy than someone who desperately understands their need for mercy? Your struggle with sin does not disqualify you from helping others. Your struggle with sin is what makes you helpful. See, the only thing that disqualifies you from helping others is a refusal to admit that you struggle with sin. In fact, your own struggle is what will make you very sensitive to the signs that someone else might be struggling. So every time I purchase a car, I have the same experience. Everywhere I drive, I notice the make and model of my car. So the car I'm driving right now is a Saturn View, just an amazing vehicle. If you had asked, I'm just kidding, it's not. 
if you had asked me about the Saturn view a couple years ago, I'm not sure I would have known what that was. I wouldn't have known if they were still making them or how frequently they can be found on the road, but now that I own one, like I see them all the time. So either one of two things has happened, I'm not sure which. So either a lot of people heard that I bought a Saturn view and they went out and bought one just to be like me, or I noticed them because I have this experience of owning one. You see, your struggle with sin uniquely qualifies you to help others struggling with the very same sin. So don't let your need for mercy cause you to sit quietly while a brother or sister suffers. Your need for mercy equips you to be a conduit of mercy to them. So mercy begins with repentance. It helps those in need. And third, mercy is still discerning. Look at verse six. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in this verse, a pig is a more like a wild boar. A dog is not, it's not your cute little pet at home. It's a pack of wild dogs. Both are dangerous But notice, pigs don't want pearls. Dogs don't care whether the meat has come from, whether it's been sacrificed to God. Both of them are likely to ignore everything to attack the person in front of them. Here's what Jesus is saying. Sometimes, sometimes your effort to show mercy is gonna be met with scorn and ridicule. It's possible that when you share with people the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ, they will seek to hurt you And in those moments, Jesus encourages you to use discernment. So if we share the gospel, this pearl of great price with a person, and that person understands it and reacts violently to it, we're encouraged to move on. Now this instruction raises a lot of questions that Jesus doesn't answer here. How do I know when to move on? How do I know if I should just persevere? What are the signs? Well, we don't get that answer. That's why we need discernment. Discernment that we know from the Sermon on the Mount comes from the Word of God and the Spirit of God. But it's important to note this, that Jesus speaks about not judging for five verses and allots one verse to this situation. And that probably says something about where most of us are likely to struggle. Most of us will struggle far more with hypocritical judgment than we will with sharing the gospel too often with those who mock, ridicule, and lash out. Even if we do end up having to move on from sharing the gospel with someone, we don't do so in anger or hatred. We don't mistreat them. Remember, this command comes within the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus has already told us to shine as lights because of our good deeds and to love our enemies. The most powerful witness to a mocker is often a silent, faithful one. Criticism is not a Christian virtue. Judgmentalism, which is born of arrogance and hypocrisy, is anti-gospel. But they're very, very easy to do. It's easy for us to criticize. It's easy for us to judge. It's easy for us to condemn. How do we prevent this attitude? How do we prevent disobeying what Jesus commands here? The best defense against a critical spirit is seeking first the kingdom of God. 
You realize that's the passage which comes right before this one? Look back just a couple verses. Verse 33 of chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God. You know, people with the busy with the kingdom, they have far less time to judge. So I have three sons, and so that means whenever the television is turned on in my house, it's, it's almost always on sports. It doesn't matter what season it is, basketball, football, golf, baseball, all, we watch them all. And I just notice something as I watch sports with my sons and my brothers and other men from church, <clears throat> there's this consistent pattern that those of us who are sitting out of shape in our living rooms are really quick to criticize those who are on the field or on the court playing. So we sit in our recliners with little ability or desire or drive to play and we, we criticize those who are actually doing it, those who are sweating, those who are bleeding, those who are working hard. In fact, I've found this, that we are generally far more critical about the play than the other players in the game. So I would say this, brothers and sisters, if you struggle with a critical spirit. If you realize, yeah, I'm quick to judge others. I'm quick to condemn. Get busy serving God and sharing the gospel. The best way to kill criticism is to rehearse the gospel as you share it with others. Nothing drives a stake through a critical heart like the cross of Jesus. You see, this world doesn't need more fans who sit in the stands and criticize. This world certainly doesn't need any more referees who are always watching, ready to call a foul. What it needs is more men and women in the action. Seek first the kingdom of God. And as you do, you'll be too busy, you'll be too broken, you'll be too tired, and you will be too overwhelmed by God's mercy to you to criticize others.